Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for the Therapeutic Thursdays Ambulatory Care Pharmacy Podcast. This podcast is hosted by the ASHP section of Ambulatory Care Practitioners and provides updates on hot topics in ambulatory care pharmacy practice. So my name is Zach Weber, and I am a clinical associate professor with Purdue University College of Pharmacy and an assistant dean for education with the Indiana University Interprofessional Practice and Education Center, and I'll be your host for this session. And so with me today, I'm really excited to introduce our speakers. And so first we have Dr. Elena Klein. Dr. Klein is an ambulatory care clinical pharmacy specialist and program director for the substance use disorder at the Beaumont Family Medicine Center. And her practice interests are related to primary care, as well as the financial justification and sustainability of pharmacy services. She also enjoys practicing in substance use disorders, as well as the licensing and operations considerations associated with that, and looking at overall new program development and implementation. And joining Dr. Klein is Dr. Adam Shimami. Dr. Shimami is the faculty attending physician and medical director for the Substance Use Disorder Clinic at Beaumont Family Medical Center. And his practice specialties are substance use disorders and in primary care. And so we want to thank both of them for joining us today. And so today we're going to get started talking about our topic, which is a comprehensive interprofessional substance use disorder treatment initiative in a family medicine residency program, and looking a little bit more at the development, implementation, barriers, and successes involved in building a new specialty clinic from the ground up. So thank you both for joining us. And and as we start this conversation, I was wondering if each of you could just share a little bit of your thoughts about how you came up with the concept of developing and implementing your substance use disorder or SUD clinic. Will do. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Zach, and that wonderful introduction. So basically, the concept really came about is I family medicine by training, and part of my residency was to I was lucky enough to have experience in substance use disorders within the residency I was at as part of my educational curriculum. And with that, I just developed that great interest. I went on to utilize multiple electives of my residency and then actually in an inpatient residential treatment center in which I ended up working and continue to work there since then. And basically what I wanted to do was I realized that there is such a need in that as a primary care provider, I wanted to really address the issue of substance use disorders and particularly opioid use disorders because it is such an um, epidemic right now within in our country, and that to really address that from a biopsychosocial model. And what does that mean really is to really address all domains that really impact substance use disorders, the biological aspect, the psychological aspect, and all the social aspect um, issues that come along with that. So with that, you know, given the opportunity that I had and to really increase my comfort level, because this is a particularly different subset of patient population that you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis, but yet so prevalent. And as a primary care provider, you are the one at the front line. And really the patient has to establish that connection and report with you on that long-term relationship. So I wanted to kind of establish this multidisciplinary team in order to train and provide the services that we that were needed in the primary care setting. And the opportunity when I joined Beaumont was to implement such thing is such program within our clinic. And that's kind of where I came in. So I've had some experience with grant writing in the past. 
Um, and so when Adam came in with this grandiose idea um, to start this clinic within our primary care setting, we combined his expertise in substance use disorder and some of my expertise in grant writing. So we submitted a proposal to the Michigan Health Endowment Fund, and we were very fortunate to receive just under a half million dollars to start up this substance use disorder clinic. And so as Adam said, our goals really were to identify and treat substance use disorders for the patients in our clinic and those in our community, but also to train the next generation of physicians, pharmacists, behavioral health providers who are going to be treating these patients in the long run. Um, so we wanted to treat the patients and to train providers to really just feel more comfortable in, in treating this oftentimes more difficult po patient population. So in order to do so, we, we had to add some team members. So Adam became the medical director for this clinic, so we needed to add some administrative time for him. I became the program director, so I needed some admin time as well. And then we also added a part-time clinical pharmacist to our team, as well as a full-time CADC credentialed social worker and one peer recovery coach. Um, and what's great about it is that it was all housed on-site under one umbrella within our clinic. And I just wanted to kind of clarify what CAADC is, uh, really is, stands for, so Certified Advanced Alcohol and Drug Counseling, which is the highest level of accreditation that you get in social work to provide those services. That becomes important from a billing standpoint. Sure. Thank you both. No, it's always so exciting and cool to hear when your expertise comes together and you're able to involve so many people to, to put together such an amazing service to provide benefit to your patients and your community. So, so thank you both for sharing the background of kind of how this, this model got started. And so we know that one of the most important aspects of this model, of course, is using medications in the treatment of these patients. And so, Dr. Shamami, I was wondering if you could provide a little bit more information about what medications are utilized for medication-assisted treatment, or MAT, in your SUD clinic, and how is the type of MAT decided on for each patient? Absolutely. Um, excellent question, actually. So the treatment philosophy that I, you know, that I carry with me is really based on meeting where the patient is at and offer them a menu of options, whether it is medication-assisted treatment versus abstinence-based, really meeting where the patient is at, because I feel that it's very important to really be a, a partner with the patient, so that way for best outcome, rather than more being, you know, dictating it's this or that, you know? And I think I found that in 10 plus years of doing this is that the patient's responds much better that way in order to really facilitate that. So just going to kind of go over what the patient experience is like when a patient's identified, whether it's self-reported or primary care provider or which, whichever way that meet is, uh, may be, is that they initially meet with our um, social worker to really have a biopsychosocial assessment, which is essentially an intake to establish a diagnosis and kind of next steps. Then at that time, they will meet with a provider in which that's where the many of options are presented in medications. And within that same visit, typically that's where the pharmacist comes in to kind of address the other um, issues, which I will go into detail a little bit more. So, but obviously, and then the first step is when the person is either continue, you know, still using up to the point that we're seeing, we need to detox first, which is step one. But I always highlight that detox is only part of the puzzle, really, for best sustained recovery and sobriety long term is really beyond detox. So in our clinic, we utilize um, buprenorphine products, um, whether it is oral or injectable. We are also utilizing injectable naltrexone, which is um, Vivitrol, as well as other forms of oral uh, medications, a naltrex, oral naltrexone, as well as 
disulfiram. We do not utilize methadone clinic. We are not a methadone clinic. And the reason for that is because in order to introduce methadone, you'd have to be a fully licensed methadone because the reason being is because it's under the umbrella of an opioid use disorder diagnosis. Methadone has to be in a specialist qualified clinic. So although some candidates are definitely, I mean, some patients are definitely good candidates for methadone versus, you know, but I'm always, um, I'm a big fan of offering patients different options. Sit, look, you know, getting a detailed history. And that's where the intake and the assessment really come into play as far as what is best for this patient, what has tried, what has failed, what has worked, what has not worked. And sometimes we just need to take a different approach on a case by case basis. Every, you know, this is not a cookie cutter algorithmic approach. And that's where that multidisciplinary team approach really comes into play to so that for everybody to give their own input and really come up with a treatment plan. So just to kind of, um, and if those patients that need whether a higher level of care versus inpatient residential treatment or a methadone clinic, to the methadone um, clinic, they're referred via warm handoff by our social worker to those next levels of care, whatever that may be. And with that, um, with the buprenorphine, um, just to kind of give you on the, on the data wavering requirements is that up until probably about two months ago, you had to become data wavered regardless of how many patients to treat in order to write for buprenorphine as a provider. And the rules have changed a little bit in that the data wavering course is no longer required for up to 30 patients. However, anything beyond 30 patients, you have to be now, tra- you know, you still have to take the course and become to become data wavered if you're treating beyond 30 points. That's a hard sticking rule. You cannot, and by 30 patients, meaning on any given day. So if I am, if today, if I run a report, if I'm at 31, I'm in violation of that, um, of that rule. If I don't, if that's what I'm wavered to do. However, though, up to the 30 patients and in, in, for any suboxone buprenorphine product that's written, regardless, if you're using for opioid use, you have to be data wavered. But you may not need to take the course up to 30, but you still need that X number, which is the separate DEA number that you are provided. So you still have to complete that application and apply for that wavering through the DEA and things like that. So that has not changed, but the course now has changed. So you don't need to be take the course in order to become data wavered. And that's a very recent change as of probably less than two months ago. Sure. Thank you. No, I really appreciate all the insights that you provided on, on the importance of medications as well as some of the other processes that are there to be able to use those medications in, in this type of practice. And I was also really intrigued to hear about the importance of interprofessional collaboration coming around these patients and centering around their care and looking at how different professions can have roles and making sure that they're receiving optimal care. And so I was wondering if you each could kind of expand a little bit more on, on what is the role of the pharmacist in the SUD clinic? Yes, absolutely, Zach. So our pharmacist wears quite a few different hats within our clinic. So one of the things she does is she performs a medication review for all of our patients. She provides education on the specific MAT treatment that the patient is being prescribed and actually goes through a checklist for whether it be the injectable naltrexone or the buprenorphine that the patient is prescribed, making sure that the patient truly understands what they're starting and um, make sure that all of their questions are answered. She also does medication coordination. So it's been a lot simpler to get buprenorphine covered by the insurance lately. However, the injectable naltrexone or Vivitrol 
requires quite a bit of coordination in order to get it to our office. So this involves working with the specialty pharmacy to get it ordered, covered by the insurance, and then delivered to our office before the patient comes in for their appointment for the injection. She also works on tapering plans and follow-up plans for the patients who maybe choose not to use medication-assisted treatment, but just need to taper off or down from their, their opioid or benzodiazepine. So she works quite a bit with, with those sorts of things. And then um, we also would like in the future to expand the pharmacist services to really work even more so with Dr. Shimami and the other providers to kind of see the patients for their follow-up appointments and kind of see the patients with Dr. Shimami, and then also expand to um, some different billing opportunities, such as the MTM billing for medication reviews for Medicaid patients, because substance use disorder is actually one of the diagnosis codes that are covered. And then um, in addition, we have incorporated Provider Delivered Care Management, or PDCM, into our substance use disorder treatment, which is basically a coverage option for patients in the state of Michigan who have Blue Cross Blue Shield or priority health coverage. We actually have some value-based reimbursement opportunities and billing opportunities in the state because of the PDCM um, within those insurance companies. So those are kind of some avenues that, that the pharmacist has worked through so far and some of our ideas for expansion. From a physician standpoint, as everything that Elena has said, but also from my perspective, working with the pharmacist has been a godsend for me because it has really improved good care coordination. It allows me to see more access to patients because the pharmacist is doing all the medication education that's provided and she probably does a better job than I do. And also assisting with the treatment plan development. And our goal is that, um, like Elena said, is to really have her more see patients, you know, in the future, as well as whether it's identifying drug-drug interactions, adverse effects, coordination with pharmacies, and things like that, which a lot of that, when I was in private practice doing this, all of that either fell on me or my nurse. And it just took a lot, a lot of time. But also a lot of times when other disciplines or other, um, you know, the, whether it's the pharmacist or the social worker and things like that, they can get some information from the patient that I may not. And they can bring a lot to the table and whether modifying the treatment plan, identifying other, you know, other risks for even relapses and things like that. But also that provides really much better patient care because their focus is so more towards the medications themselves, as well as, like I said, when I was in private practice, I did all this administrative, which really took away time from me. So it really has helped improve my burnout, um, which is a big thing right now in the medical community and the medical providers is um, increased levels of burnout. And that's because of lack of resources. So in our center, we're just really, I'm, I for myself, very fortunate to have to work with an amazing team in order to really treat and, and provide the best care for the patient. Perfect. Thank you both. Yeah, it's always so exciting to hear about times when, you know, we can come together as different professions and not only work kind of within our scope of practice individually, but more importantly, come, you know, come together around the patient to accomplish even bigger, greater goals. And obviously, you know, promote well-being and, and resilience and minimize burnout, which is so important for all of us as healthcare providers nowadays. Um, and, and so you mentioned, you know, Dr. Klein, not only about some of the roles that the pharmacists have already, but obviously some of the goals of things that you would like to expand to in the future. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on what means have you worked with to justify the financial sustainability and future expansion of this clinic? Yes. So we've looked at this from a couple different angles. So 
First of all, as, as we mentioned previously, in order to start up this program, we knew we needed some grant funding. If we just went to the C-suite and said, hey, we need a half million dollars. We want to start up this clinic, but we have no proof that it's going to provide reimbursement. Um, it probably wouldn't have gone very well. So we knew that we had to start out with some grant funding, which we were very fortunate to receive. Um, we quickly found out that we actually needed to be a licensed and accredited program to really receive the best contracts and reimbursement for these services. So just as we were about to kind of hopefully start seeing our patients, open the clinic doors, we found out about the licensing requirement. So that kind of put us back about nine months in preparing a whole manual and binder of, you know, the consents, the disclosures, everything that was required from a federal and state perspective to, to truly start up a, a clinic such as this. So we became a licensed program in the state of Michigan, and that allowed us to start billing just some of the, some of the billing codes that, that we do for the patients in our clinic. That allowed us to also bill for the behavioral health services that are happening within our clinic through that CAADC credentialed social worker. So with that being said, um, it's always a work in progress, but what we do is we have a quarterly reimbursement report. We work directly with our coding specialists in our office. We look at the codes that we think we should be able to bill and we're billing. And then we look at, hey, what was the actual reimbursement for that we received versus what we thought we were going to receive? Um, she has been instrumental for us in really reaching out to the insurance companies um, wherever there were discrepancies in, in what we thought we should have received versus what we did. Still a work in progress there. But also with our licensure, we were able to get a county contract to become an opioid health home within the state of Michigan. So that's basically a per patient per month reimbursement that we're able to receive. And that really helps to pay for all of the different team members. So myself as the program director, Dr. Shimami as medical director, and then also the peer recovery coach, pharmacist, and social worker, which right now the pharmacist and peer recovery coach really aren't billing a ton. So that part helps to sustain those positions. And then in addition, we're currently working toward our accreditation through the joint commission to, for um, substance use disorder services. And that will really open the doors for additional county contracts, which will essentially allow us to bill for Medicaid patients with substance use disorder for behavioral health services. And that's one of the big barriers to treatment at this point. Um, however, we're working internally with our accreditation team in order to set ourselves up for, um, for that accreditation come next year. And then lastly, um, some value-based reimbursement opportunities have been very helpful to us. Like I mentioned before, the provider-delivered care management, we were able to hit some quality metrics there. We were able to provide services to a specific amount of patients to reach our goal to receive more value-based reimbursement. And then we also were able to serve as MAT champions for our health system, which brought us in additional bonus payments. So really from a financial sustainability standpoint, we're really trying to look at it from all different angles of how to sustain these services and to build upon them to expand throughout the health system in the future. Yeah, no, that's amazing. It's, it's so great to hear about all the, the successes and the wins that you've had, not only when it comes to providing patient care, but, but setting up a model 
that, that can be sustainable so you can continue to provide future care to, to the patients and to your community. But I'm sure you encountered no shortage of barriers uh, along the way as, as you were setting up everything that you guys have described so far. And so I was wondering if each of you could just provide maybe a little bit more detail about, you know, what barriers have you encountered as you've developed and implemented this new specialty clinic within a primary care setting? Sure. The barriers were a lot. It's a long laundry <laughs> list. But um, again, as with any large organization, there are many layers to navigate through and finding out which department to really uh, identify, which department to really work with and collaborate. And with that, and in an institution, let alone in an institution that does not offer those types of services, that becomes even more difficult because every, every idea or thought or every email that was sent um, provided 17 more emails and meetings that followed that. And a lot of it is just because, it may, again, it's not that, you know, just not knowing. And, you know, it's a new service line and there's a lot at stake and things like that. But, you know, we had to work with HR. We had to work with legal, compliance, IT, you know, and developing internal processes because we're operating a clinic within a clinic. So the scheduling, logistics, how do we separate the two? How do we separate the clinical from the residency and so on and so forth? So we did, you know, encountered some of those barriers. The biggest ones, I would say, probably Elena would agree to that, were the legal compliance and IT. There, you know, we had to develop all different new processes, consents, disclosures to really be in compliance with the CFR um, 42 Part two, which are these are the federal regulations given that our clinic is fully licensed through the state of Michigan. And that what that does is really it's almost HIPAA times 10. That is to prevent disclosures and redisclosures of sensitive material. We also had to collaborate very closely with IT because we had to develop a whole IT workspace in order to meet the you know, the regulations of redisclosures and patient sensitivity. So all the encounters that are STD related are actually all sensitive and visible to those who have proxy. The only thing that is not is medications. And that's because that's a safety issue that if patient presents to the ER, for whatever reason it is, the, the providers need to know that there are um, the patients, whether it's on um, buprenorphine, bibitol, whatever it may be. So that you can never be 100% sensitive. And I, I don't, and keep in mind that CFR 42 was written back in the 70s. So a lot has changed since then. And there's a lot of talks about revisions and revising these rules because with the EMRs and things like that, that the medications become a huge safety issue. The legal and compliance, again, the policies that can sense the workflows. And again, it's part of a large institution to get moving through the committees and um, different layers has been very um, um, challenging. And that's why it took about nine, 10 months from the time that we found that we needed to be licensed till actually we had our um, licensure survey because all of those processes had to be put in place. And not only that, but also developing internal processes as part of being in a primary care um, clinic. Um, just got a little, a, a little perspective is that we see about 35,000 patients in our clinic. There's about 40 providers within our clinic. So logistically and operationally, we had to, you know, and we're operating, like I said, a clinic within a clinic and trying to separate all of that. That, was, that has been also um, challenging as well. But again, I think that um, when you're determined to do things and you've assembled the right team and it's very possible, it's very possible and doable. And I think once things kind of settle down, it may be very tasking or difficult to get what you want. But once things kind of set in place and a lot of times, like I said, it's just lack of education to the people, you know, to the 
disciplines that you're working with to kind of identify, you know, to treat because it's not just as you're treating somebody who's coming in for their diabetes or hypertension and things like that. And there's a lot, and this is a multidisciplinary team. So there's a lot of different cooks in the kitchen, I should say. (laughs) And we've learned a lot, even just about the requirements outside of our health system too. So when we learned we had to be licensed and we looked at all the requirements, um, it was very overwhelming, but at the same time, I think it really set us up for success to run this clinic properly. So while it took more time to get it set up, we truly did set it up properly that way. So while that was a barrier, I think it ended up being of great benefit to us. Um, And then in addition, one of the things we're really still working toward is the accreditation piece. Um, The thing that's tough about accreditation is you need to be accredited in order to receive a county contract. And so with that being said, um, you have to receive a contract with each of the different counties to treat the patients who reside in those counties. So we we treat patients from kind of three major counties in the surrounding area. So that means we need a contract with each of those counties in order to receive reimbursement for Medicaid patients for behavioral health services. And in our clinic, we're over 50% Medicaid. So that's a really big deal for us. These county contracts only come out in a rotating cycle, which could be every three years. Um, so really, you have to be ready to jump on them when they when they come up. Um, so that's why we're really pushing to get accredited as soon as possible. So we've just really tried to look at all these barriers as learning opportunities. Um, and, and, you know, it's really satisfying at the end of the day when, when you start to see some of this come to fruition. And just to kind of piggyback on that, what was a little bit more challenging for us is that we started seeing our first patient in September of 2019. And that was challenging enough to kind of get things kind of up and moving. And six months later, we had to, with COVID and all of that, you know, by March, we had to transition completely to a virtual platform, almost completely, with the exception of we still needed to see patients. And uh, we were very proud to make that transition very seamlessly um, to the virtual setting. And that's because the um, the regulations loosened up a little bit and being able to provide some of these visits virtually because prior to that, you were not able to. It had to be face-to-face, um, at least on the initial visit. However, though, we did not lose track of any of our patients on all of them, you know, through all different um, disciplines that are involved within our team that we're still able to reach our patients and to, you know, provide those services that they need, especially at this very difficult time where isolation, a lot of increased stressors at home, job loss, kids being virtually schooled and things like that. So that kind of threw a little wrench in that um, as well. But like I said, we transitioned very well. And I think that's because of our resilience as a team to kind of be very proactive. And, and as Elena said, we kind of set things up from the beginning for our success. Yeah, wonderful. You know, so such great information and, and, and such a great story to hear about the development of this amazing service and this clinic that you've been able to provide to, to your patients. And, and I certainly want to commend you and your colleagues for your willingness to, to push through these barriers. I, I have no doubt that some of them were extremely difficult to get through. But as you mentioned, with, with the team in place and the resilience that you all have, you were, you were able to be successful in, in setting up such a great model to, to help your patients in your community. So, but with that, I think that's all the time that we do have today for, for our podcast. And so I want to thank you both again, Dr. Klein and Dr. Shamami, for joining us to, to discuss your comprehensive interprofessional substance use disorder treatment initiative within your family residency program. And for everybody, please remember to to join us here every Thursday, where we'll be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. So thank you again, um, and thank everybody for joining us today.
Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.